with Ajahn Brahm's permission. Very good evening, brothers and sisters in the Dhamma. Brief intro on Ajahn Brahm. Ajahn Brahm was born in England, was educated in Cambridge. So with Ajahn Brahm's brilliance and wisdom combined with his in the typical English wit and humour, have combined into Ajahn Brahm's unique style of delivering the Dhamma. So with that, I would like to invite Ajahn Brahm to deliver tonight's Dhamma talk. Very good. So this evening's Dhamma talk is entitled uh, Creation or Evolution. And as uh, Chao Po just said, I was created in London and I evolved in Thailand and I've continued to evolve <laughs> in Australia and Penang as well. But even though this is a subject which Buddhists don't really talk about all that much and the reason I chose these subjects is because I've been coming to Penang for many years now and everything I talk about is put on tapes and CDs so sometimes it's a challenge. Let's talk about something you haven't heard about before. So I thought, let's try creation and evolution. Usually Buddhists don't really spend much time on this uh, subject because most of the time that's talking about where we came from and how we got here. And as Buddhists, we don't really concern ourselves too much about the past. We're more concerned about where we are and what we're going to do next. So instead of thinking as a Buddhist, how did I get in this mess and who's to blame? We say, here I am in this mess, now what am I going to do about it? Now this is an important part of like a wise person's practice. Because if you always start thinking, oh, what did I do wrong? Who did this and who did that? You are actually wasting time. Which is why, you know, one of the main teachings of the Buddha, and this is answers the Buddhist, the usual way Buddhists talk about creation and evolution. He said, well, it's like a person who's been shot by an arrow. And he starts to ask, well, who shot this arrow? What's the arrow made from? And why did he shoot it at me? And all the time he's asking these questions, you should be calling for ambulance to actually get you to hospital to get the arrow removed. And this is an important point in life. Every time we start worrying about the past, who's to blame, why did they do this, why did it happen to me? Every time you start dwelling in the past, it means you're not doing anything about the problem in the present moment. In other words, you are just not solving the problem. You're missing the opportunities. So whatever you experience in life, don't worry, how did I get here? Who did this? Why did this happen to me? That is wasting valuable time. Instead, here I am. This is a situation I'm in. Now, what am I going to do about this? No one to blame. Because sometimes you can't blame anyone. Sometimes people try and blame themselves and they think, well, if only I'd have done something different. If only I'd made a different choice. If I only hadn't married that guy, I married another guy instead. 
We call that in English hindsight. I don't believe in hindsight. Really, Buddhists do not do hindsight. The reason is because you look, well, if I'd have done something different, if I'd have gone left instead of right last week, you don't know what might have happened. The past is so uncertain. And the way that events change because you turn left instead of right or right instead of left, you don't know what might have happened. Look at me. I once, when I was 16 years of age, I got a school prize for mathematics. Now, I went to an ordinary primary school because my family was poor in London, and I got a scholarship to a good school when I went to that good school, I wasn't very good, but as I progressed through the years, it got better and better and better. And my very first school prize I got when I was 16. And I didn't know what to do with the school prize, so I asked my teacher, what are you supposed to do? And he said, get one book, a hardcover book, on mathematics. And then, when it comes to prize day, the headmaster will present you with this nice book. But you know what I did? I went to the bookshop and saw all these books on mathematics. And I thought, boring. <laughs> I said, you can get those books from the school library. And it's their job to teach me about mathematics. And instead, on the opposite side of the road, this was Foyle's bookshop in Charing Cross Road. On the opposite side of the road, in the annex, in the top story, it was all these books on Eastern religions like Buddhism and occult things like ghosts. And I was always interested in that type of stuff. And I thought, I am not going to waste my first school prize on a boring book on mathematics. And instead I went up there and I bought about six or seven paperbacks for the same price as the hardback. And I really got into trouble. I think actually the prize which the headmaster had to offer me was the Tibetan Book of the Dead. <laughs> and now this, this was an English school in the 60s. And I think the headmaster, he almost had a heart attack when he looked at the book he was supposed to offer me. I got into trouble for that. But sometimes you look, if I'd have followed orders, and if I'd have got a book on mathematics, I probably would never become a monk. So was it a mistake or was it the karmic forces of evolutionary history of Ajahn Brahm came into place and made me go up to the annex? And I don't know, but sometimes you think, but if I'd have done things differently, what would have happened? You just don't know. If I'd have got that book on mathematics, maybe I'd have come across Buddhism later. Maybe it was meant to be. Who knows? But the point was, I can't do hindsight. I can't say that was a mistake or that was the right thing to do. Which is why as a Buddhist, no matter what happens to you, don't look to the past and say, oh, I should have done something else. I should have never got married. I should have been single. Then I could have spent more time practicing my meditation. Oh, I shouldn't have taken that promotion. Now I've got heart problems. Oh, I shouldn't have... <laughs> You don't think like that because you can't change the past. It's set, you did it. 
Instead, now what am I going to do about this? But nevertheless, human beings, despite what they're supposed to do, always want to try and find out where they came from. And especially human beings who look philosophically and try and say, we're on this planet Earth, where did it come from? All these human beings, where did they arrive from? Even though it's a total waste of time, people like wasting time and they start thinking about the past. And other religions think about the past and so sometimes we have to almost like keep up with the Joneses. And just they say, oh, the Earth was created in this way and it evolved. So it's a question as Buddhists we have to answer. And actually, sometimes it's useful to answer those questions because it brings up a better understanding of where we are now when we know where we've been. So that's why the, even though the Buddhist texts don't say hardly anything about the origin of this universe, other religions do. And they might ask you, well, what do Buddhists think about the origins? And first of all, you see, I never said creation, origins, because creation gives the idea there was some being or some beings who actually made this happen. But the origin of the universe is a more open question, because it said, well, it could have been created by some being, or it could have just come about from other causes. Now, one of the... Um, traits of Ajahn Brahm is that I was trained as a scientist and so my whole background before I was a monk was in science and as a physicist as well and that was a question which physicists were asking themselves about the origin of this material universe. Now straight away that begs the question not just the material universe but the origins of life which is actually separate from the material universe now these streams of consciousness which go around both in the human form and other forms as well, where did they come from? But let's put that aside for a few moments and just look at the origin of this physical universe because that's something which the scientists have really got down pat and they've got some great answers for that. And these are answers which are much more logical. Now as a scientist, whenever you get any understanding, when you sort of uh, look at all the information, collect all the data and work out a theory which explains everything, in science you present that to your peers. In other words, you write it up in some journal and you ask all of your friends and colleagues, criticize this, check it out to see if it's right. Because in science we're willing to sacrifice now, our reputation for the sake of truth. Truth takes precedence in science. So it doesn't matter how much work you've done, how much thought you've given in to trying to find an explanation to these things, you present it to your friends and say, please try and disprove it because it's more important that we find the truth than I am right. Now that's an important point in science and it's also an important part in Buddhism as well. It's more important to find the truth than to be right. Because if being right is the most important, then you sacrifice the truth. It's my theory and doesn't matter what you say, it's my theory, it must be right. And that's called belief. Some years ago, I just made a sort of a statement to sort of try and 
generalize and describe the different types of religion to be found in the world. And basically I said there are two types of religion. And this goes across all types of religions, including Buddhism. First of all, there is the religion which bends the truth to fit the faith. Bends the truth to fit the faith. And the other type of religion bends the faith to fit the truth. You get that? You bend the truth to fit your beliefs or you bend your beliefs to fit the truth. Now Buddhism certainly should be of the second type. You always bend the beliefs, bend, the bend the, uh, your ideas to fit the truth. The truth is paramount. So really, it doesn't matter what Ajahn Brahm says. It doesn't even matter so much what the Buddha said in the texts. If the truth is otherwise, you have to follow the truth. So there are no sacred cows in Buddhism. As there are no sacred cows in science either. It doesn't matter the most sacred beliefs from the most prominent scientists. If someone proves them wrong, truth wins all the time. That's why we have peer review. So even what I say, sitting up here on the high seat, whatever any monk or nun says, whatever you read in any book, challenge it. Think about it. Question it. Try and disprove it. And if it holds up to all the questioning, all the facts, then great. I can believe that. I can take that on board. That is truth. That's science and that's Buddhism as I learned it. I was encouraged by people like Ajahn Chah to question everything, even to challenge Ajahn Chah if I thought he was wrong. And he would accept that and encourage you to do that because he realized that that was the way of coming to truth. So when it comes to the origin of this universe, we should keep challenging until we find something which makes sense. And I must admit that what I see in the, the Buddhist suttas is only tiny bits. That's not really makes sense. But what I see in science, that makes a lot of sense. And it's been challenged, tested, more evidence has come up. And basically that is that this universe began about, I think it's something like 13 or 14,000 million years ago. It's the old Big Bang theory of the universe. And of course you know that that sort of Big Bang, that was proposed by Professor Stephen Penrose. Oh no, sorry, 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 sorry. That was uh, Stephen Hawkins. And even though I don't really know the guy, I would have actually bumped into him because we were hanging out in the same building, sort of in Cambridge. But, you know, he wasn't in a wheelchair there, probably some you know, spotty student, and I wouldn't know him, he would have known me. But, you know, he was the guy who invented, or rather had this Big Bang Theory of the universe. And it's been around for such a long time, being tested, and basically it works. Now, because I was a physicist before, and I still sometimes hang out with the professors of physics in Perth. I know one of them often comes to my talks, you know, because he's uh, very interested, if he's not actually a Buddhist, 
And one of the other ones, we always tend to have these uh, seminars in his university, University of Western Australia, because we know each other and we can talk to each other. We have great discussions. And one of these discussions we had on science and religion. Now remember, I, all of my studies were done over 35 years ago, and sometimes you keep up, but sometimes you don't keep up with the latest research. And just, you know, because I'm a meditator, sometimes you have a very clear mind, and sometimes you contemplate these things, and you get some really interesting answers as a meditator. So on this one time, we were having a discussion in public, you know, in one of the lecture theatres with a you know, packed house, and we were talking about sort of science and religion. And I said, I remember from you know, my science, easy science, that there's a basic law of science, and it's called the conservation of energy. In other words, you can't create energy, you can't take energy away. And the sum total of energy, or in uh, modern science, mass energy, must remain constant. So that begs the question, if energy can't be created or destroyed, where did this universe come from? And then I said that I also remember from my science, there is such a thing, and this is hard science, there is such a thing as negative energy. And I know one example of that which many of you will recognize, and that's what we call in science potential energy. When you have something with a mass here in this gravitational field of the Earth, it takes a lot of energy to free it from this field of gravity. That is actually a negative in the sum total of energy. And is any mass or any uh, particle in any type of field that will have a negative component to the sum of energy? And I was just proposing, I said, well, this is just a theory, this is Ajahn Brahm's theory of the creation of the universe. <laughs> I always like to sort of have fun. I said, what would it be like? Is it possible that the sum total of positive energy in this whole big universe exactly balances the amount of negative energy in this universe? so that if the sum total of energy was actually zero, this universe could have come out of nothing. And I remember Professor David Blair, who, not this year, last year, won Scientist of the Year in Australia, he turned around to me and said, wow, you're up to date, omega equals one. And that's what he told me. Because, you know, in science they have all of these Greek letters, you know, sort of E and I, and you know, all... Uh, referring to some um, standard in physics, some number in physics, and omega was their number, which is the ratio to positive and negative energy. And it's been recently proved to equal one. In other words, all my little theories turned out to be right. The amount of energy in this universe, according to modern science, the sum total of it is zero. Came out of nothing. The sum total now is nothing. And of course it can go back to nothing. Emptiness. <laughs> now that is hard science. But it also means 
if this universe can come out of nothing, we don't need a God to add the seed of energy from which this universe evolved. It comes out of nothing, and if you ask any scientist why, the answer is because it can. Now that is a very deep philosophical answer. It's not something which is just um, begging another question. If it can, eventually it will. And that's how this universe started according to science. It didn't need anything to keep it to start it. It's a zero energy universe which evolves until it just disappears back to zero again. And of course, after the beginnings of the universe of Big Bangs, science has pretty much worked out how everything sort of came about. But one of the interesting things I like to share with you, which when I first heard it as a student, I thought, wow, that is cool. And that was that this sun, which you see in the sky every morning and at lunchtime, until the evening time. That is a third generation star. By that it means that the history of that star was that it was formed out of the remnants of a second generation star, which itself was formed out of the dust from the first generation star. So the history of that star was that many that, well, probably thousands of millions of years ago, there was a big star in this universe which exploded in a huge supernova. Incredible, powerful, forceful explosions in this universe, sending dust all over this huge universe. And some of it collected together, some of it was attracted together into the second generation star. And that burned for another few thousands of millions of years until that too exploded again, sending second generation stardust throughout the whole of this universe until that collected together after many thousands of millions of years. And that is our sun. And the dust which didn't actually get into the sun formed our planet Earth. And you are part of that dust. You are literally stardust. <laughs> Isn't that cool? Not just ordinary stardust. You are recycled stardust. <laughs> You're environmentally 100% recycled. <laughs> Now there's a vast amounts of time. And actually that's what happened. Ask any scientist and there, that's where you came from. But long, long distances of time. And then you get this, this planet Earth cooling off. And then you get sort of the beings appearing into it. But as it was cooling off, one interesting extra point I'm going to tell you. And this might explain why I come from Perth in Western Australia. Why build a monastery in that part of Australia? And why is that monastery such a successful Buddhist monastery 
Now I'll tell you why. As this planet Earth cooled, as these plates formed on the surface of the hot mantle, those plates, the tectonic plates, started to move. And you ask any geologist, you'll find that Australia and India, many millions of years ago, were joined together. And where Perth is now, it was right joined to the west coast of India, probably in the past, when there was no Indian Ocean separating Perth and India. Previous Buddhas would have walked over the city of Perth. Because <laughs> they were together. Have a look on those ancient maps of the world. It's called Godwana land. All one place. So, where I live was once part of India. And who knows? The Buddha would not have to fly. Would not have to go on MAS to go to Perth. <laughs> would just need to walk. So who knows? Maybe that's why Bodhinyana Monastery or even Jhana Grove Retreat Center is such a powerful place. Who knows? But anyway, <laughs> back to the talk. So it's pretty clear where this physical earth came from. But then we got something even more interesting, life. Because we have this wonderful thing called life on this planet earth. And first of all, you can ask, is there life? on other planets, in other parts of the solar system, in other parts of the universe? Does E.T. really exist? And you know, that's an interesting question. As many scientists say, well, if life can appear on one universe, or one planet, why not other planets? And statistically, the number of even suns, I think, in the solar system, not in the solar system, in the galaxy called the Milky Way, I remember, it's amazing, I've got a good memory, 10 to the 11th suns in the Milky Way. Now, what does 10 to the 11th? That's one with 11 zeros afterwards. That's 100 billion suns. Just in this, this um, universe, uh, this galaxy called the Milky Way. And there are billions of galaxies as well. So the statistical probability of there being life on some planet, on one of those 10 or 100 billion suns in just the Milky Way is a huge probability. So what did the Buddha say about that? In the Anguttara Nikaya, in one of the suttas there, he said, yes, there is. In other places, there are beings just like us. <laughs> However, they haven't visited yet. And I wouldn't encourage them to visit the crazy place we live in. There's many other places to go on a holiday rather than planet Earth. <laughs> but there, yeah, they did say, but that's by the way. But what's really interesting is, how did we get here? What is the origin of life now? What is the difference between just like a rock and you? 
what actually makes this thing we call life before we can say what the origin is. And of course, you know, what we know as Buddhists, what animates us is what we call the stream of consciousness or the mind. So when we talk about evolution or the origin of this universe, now we're talking about something else. The origin of the physical universe, fine, we can understand that. I didn't mention that um, maybe about, it must be about 10 years ago, it was Carl Epstein, he was a major professor from, I think it was UCLA, was doing an extension of what we call string theory, called brain theory, B-R-A-N-E, membranes for short. And his theory was showing that this is not the first universe. This is not the first Big Bang. But there's been many serial Big Bangs, one after another, after another, after another, ad infinitum. And that was state-of-the-art physics the last time I checked. So when even anyone asks you, what about the origin of the universe? As a Buddha, as a scientist, you would answer, which universe are you thinking about? This one or the previous one? That's what science would say, and you know that's also what Buddhism says as well. Because in the suttas, the Buddha said he remembered 93 eons, and an eon is one universe cycle, from Big Bang until the whole thing just stops. Now, I always thought, why 93? And it's a weird number. It meant that just that was the number he could remember. It wasn't anything magical. You'd think he'd say 108. Or if the Buddha was Chinese, he'd probably say he remembered 88 universes. Far, far. But he said 93, and that was weird. That gave it some credibility. So even in Buddhism, we say, no, no, this, even the Buddha remembered 92 Big Bangs, the one before, the one after. So it is serial universes in Buddhism. So you say, who created this universe, or how did this universe originate? Well, Big Bang, but this is not the first universe. They go on and 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 on. Even universes get recycled. So, back to life. What is life? It's that stream of consciousness. The mind. Christians call it the soul. You can call it the soul if you like, as long as you realize the soul is always mutating, never constant, never permanent. That's why in Buddhism we prefer to use the word stream of consciousness. Just like any other stream or river, it looks the same today as it looked yesterday. You go to any river, it looks exactly the same. But we all know that all the water you saw yesterday has all flown away. You've got new water today. It looks the same, but it is totally different every moment. That's why the stream of consciousness gives you the proper impression, the proper simile of what the mind is. Sometimes it looks the same, but it's constantly changing. And it's never the same in two moments. So that's the stream of consciousness, the mind which actually creates life as we know it. In Buddhism, when the stream of consciousness enters the mother's womb, that animates the baby. Whether it's a baby kangaroo, or a baby human being, or sort of a baby snake. Still needs that stream of consciousness to get things going. 
So where did that stream of consciousness come from? Was that created? Was that originated? Where did that come from? Now, first of all, you have to get some better idea of what this stream of consciousness is, especially in its relation to you and this planet Earth and the universe. Now, to understand this, sometimes in a talk like this I can get very complicated and sometimes talk over people's heads with big bangs and omega equals one and brain theory but now I'm going to keep it really down to earth. The nature of the mind. This explanation is so simple but incredibly profound. And this came from the daughter of one of my best friends from college time. And last October I went to see him. Unfortunately his daughter was off somewhere else doing what 26 or 27 year olds do. So she couldn't come to see me. But she, we got a letter just before I left saying she was terribly sorry not to meet me. But this was when she was five years of age in her first year at school. Now this was an incredibly bright kid because in the first grade at school one day the teacher asked a very simple question and this simple question led to a very very profound insight. The question was what is the biggest thing in the world? Now that was the question asked by the teacher to five-year-olds. One little girl put her hand up, teacher, 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 teacher. My daddy is the biggest thing in the world. <laughs> Can you imagine a little five-year-old girl? For her, the daddy is huge. Another boy put a hand up, miss, 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 miss. An elephant is the biggest thing in the world. An elephant is much bigger than her daddy. Miss, 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 miss. A mountain. A mountain is much bigger than an elephant. So the kids were really getting into this. It was a great question. They were thinking. And the daughter of my best friend at university put up her hand and says, Miss, my eye is the biggest thing in the world. Everyone went quiet. Not even the teacher understood what she meant. So asked her to explain. What do you mean your eye is the biggest thing in the world, said the teacher. Well, miss, said this five-year-old. Imagine only five years of age. Well, miss, my eye can see her daddy. My eye can see an elephant and a mountain and so much more. If all of that can fit into my eye, my eye must be the biggest thing in the world. Now that's absolutely brilliant philosophy. Reasonable, logical, it just has a different framework. All of that can fit into your eye. So your eye must be the biggest thing in the whole world. And of course, my friend, because he knew I was a monk and interested in these things, told me this story. I actually put it in my book, Open the Door of Your Heart. But I took it further. Because your mind can see everything your eye can see. 
And it can also imagine things you will never see in the real world. Your mind can hear everything which your ear can hear and also hear imaginary sounds. Your mind can smell, can taste, can feel sensations in the body and your mind has this other area is special to itself. Your imaginations, your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your wisdom. In fact, everything that can ever be known or perceived can fit into your mind. Therefore your mind is the biggest thing. And I pause here. And I will not say in the world because the world can fit into your mind. If you can know the world, the world fits into your mind, not the mind fitting into your world. Now once you get that framework of perception, that way of looking at things, that changes a lot. And you'll also understand some of the key Buddhist teachings, such as the first saying in the Dhammapada, the mind is the chief, the first, the forerunner of everything, including the world. The mind comes first, the world comes second. Your mind is not a byproduct of the brain. Your brain is a byproduct of your mind. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Because I learned in science, in theoretical physics, in quantum physics, and some of you may have known this, it's basic quantum physics. I won't go too deep. Schrodinger's equation. For those of you, some of you may know that. This is a basic part of science. And quantum physics is not a theory. It's a truth which has been proven again and again and again. If it was not true, you would not, the chips in your computers would not work. You would not have mobile phones. You wouldn't have digital TV. These are all quantum effects. It actually works. It's not just a theory. But the great thing about Schrodinger's equation of quantum physics, it shows the reality, if you want to call it reality, it's just this smear, they call it the smear of probability. And whenever you make an observation, in other words, whenever the mind gets involved, whenever there's a conscious event, you collapse the Schrodinger equation and you literally create the world. For those people who actually learn all of this, and they don't just manage to learn how to do all the equations and get first in their degrees, but those who sit back and look at all this and figure out what it actually means, it does mean that your mind is the creator. You create the world and the universe and everything in a much more powerful way than you even imagine. So when we call evolution and creation, 
Yes, says Buddhists, there is a creator. But it's not God. It's you. Now, let's get some nice evidence. I was always interested in weird stuff. A university, now, always, anything weird, let me know. <laughs> and one of the weird parts of life is hypnosis. And there was just one experiment was done. And it was strange. But it was true. It did it. And you can redo it. They put this man under hypnosis. And they got like a nail, like a builder's nail. I'm just using my key just to show you. And they said under hypnosis, this nail is red hot. It was just a room temperature. But they convinced him it's red hot. And we're going to put it on your skin to burn you. No, 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 no. We're going to burn you. Ah! And they put it on his skin. Ow! And he screamed. Because he believed it was red hot. Now I could understand that. Even though it's just room temperature. If you believe it's red hot under hypnosis, you maybe you will scream. What I never expected to see the blister come up. There was a physical reaction of a burn manifesting on his skin. And this was just at room temperature. The mind created that under hypnosis. Now, where do cancers come from? Are you creating them? Why is it that sometimes, as I said this afternoon, people can go into deep meditation and the cancers vanish? You don't realize how much you create even in your own physical body, let alone other things. The fact that you create your world is called the law of karma. You are the creator. You take responsibility. Now from that, we can actually understand what evolution is. How do things evolve? This is one place where I depart only slightly from classical Darwinian evolution. And I think I just read the back of a book someone gave me a couple of days ago. I was always taught in the old days that Darwinian evolution was the random selection of the species. The survival of the fittest. As it was just like random, whichever survived would carry on with those traits which enhanced its prospects for survival. But to me that always felt a little bit too random. But again, looking for weird examples of events in the world. A few years ago I came across an article in the science magazine which showed that actually there may be something else which is moving this process of evolution in a faster speed than just random selection would provide. I would answer some of the questions which say Christians say that this world has not been here long enough 
for such evolution to produce these complex species. And who knows, they may have a point, although people like Richard Dawkins say, no, no, it can be very well explained. But there is another explanation which actually fits how I understand the mind's force of creativity and also the law of karma and how this universe actually works by a Buddhist perception. And this little story happened in South Wales. For those of you old enough to know recent English history, one of their prime ministers for a long time was a lady called Margaret Thatcher. When she first came into power, one of the first things she did was to confront the militant union movement in UK, which she thought was actually holding back their economy. And the most militant of those unions was the coal miner union. She shut down many coal mines. And one of the mines she shut down was in South Wales. When it was closed, they put a ring fence around the pit head, which is this big hole in the ground going down hundreds of meters to make sure that no one would be able to go in there fall down and have an accident. And that coal mine, because it needed many workers when it was in operation, was next to a big suburb. There was many houses there, but of course these many people were unemployed. They managed to get other jobs later on. But it was right next to a large number of houses. Now number two, English people, they like pets. Everyone has a dog or a cat, but sometimes the cats have kittens. So what do you do with all these extra kittens? You try and give it to your friends. You know, here, have a kitten. But sometimes it's just too many of them. So what do you do if you can't get rid of the kittens? There are always some people who've got hearts of stone some of those people went under the fence and threw the unwanted kittens down the mine shaft, hundreds of meters to their certain death. And there, no one would know. It's like throwing them down the deepest of wells. They know this because after about 10 or 15 years, the engineers had to go down that mine just to check that it was stable. And when they got down the bottom of the shaft, they saw this huge mass of decaying cats or kittens. However, what they never expected was to see that some of those kittens had actually survived. They survived the drop. And they were living in the mine shafts in total darkness. And there must have been quite a few generations because the cats had mutated. I remember seeing the picture of one of the cats. It was blind. His eyes just hadn't opened. And his ears were about three times the size of a normal house cat. And it's obvious why. Because down there in the pitch darkness of the mine, 
You can't use eyes, they're totally useless. But the ears, these are the things which you will use to find your way around, to make sure that you're, you're not caught by other cats, or to find a cat to mate with, and to find your food. Because the sense of sound was the most important thing in those deep mine shafts, because of craving, desire, necessity, in just a few generations, the ears had grown and grown and grown to three times the size of a normal cat's ear. It was evolution seen because of necessity, not survival of the fittest, basic desire, craving to mate, to protect yourself, to find your food, that had driven the process of evolution in this special environment. And this was a unique find because they knew when that coal mine had been shut down. And now they'd found this species for the first time. They knew this had to have developed in just this space of about 10 or 15 years. And they were surprised at how fast this happened. That might also explain one of the questions which sports commentators always pose. Every time there's an Olympic Games, how come people always are beating the world records? You know, under 10 seconds for the 100 meters, under 9.8, under 9. what, I don't know what it is, 9.6 now or something? And every time the scientists, the doctors think this is impossible, anyone can go faster when they sort of jump over the bars, when they lift these heavy weights, it's impossible, the human body, it's impossible to go further. But they always do further. You know why? It's because of the will, the craving, drives that evolution to ever stronger, fitter bodies, bigger ears. It's a craving. For those of you who know your Buddhism, dependent origination, Paticca Samupada. The power of that craving to drive the process of rebirth. Not just rebirth from life to life, but driving this process of your life right now. Driving, if you like, evolution. So yeah, Buddhists believe in evolution. But evolution which is driven by craving and craving which is responding to the necessities of day, of your life and your situation. Not an evolution which is by chance, but which is driven by craving. And not something which is created once, but that craving is the power of creation. You are creating evolution, so it really is not creation or evolution, the reality, as far as Buddhists are concerned, is creation-driven evolution, with you being the creator, with human beings, with animals, with birds, with life. Because the power of craving, driving this process of evolution and change. Does that make sense? If it does, it means you have responsibilities. If you are the drivers of evolution, 
And it's up to you to make sure you're driving it in the right direction, on the correct side of the road, so you don't have accidents. And I mean by the correct side of the road, by making sure that your will, your craving, your desires are wise, compassionate, not just thinking about yourself, but thinking about your children, other people, thinking about your nation, your planet, to make sure that you're driving this process of life in a way which is both sustainable, which will be here for your children, your children's children, and your, your great-great-great-grandchildren, but also in a way which is going to be happy and harmonious. When we know that we can create the progress and change of our world, then we have to make those efforts to have more harmony, more peace, to build more bridges to people of other religions and races, to build more harmony between the different species which inhabit our planet. It's not just human beings, but all these other beings which inhabit this great planet Earth. To build that harmony, because we are creating the evolution which will produce our future. And when it's creative evolution, and you're in charge, you have responsibilities. With those responsibilities comes hope. It means you can do something about the future of the world. I know that to be true. The Buddha knew that to be true. The future is in our hands. It's not destined. We create destiny every moment. And understanding that gives us huge responsibility. If it's just in the hands of some other god, or it's the hand of the government, or it's in the hands of the United States and China, then we become inactive and lazy. When we know it's in our hands, we can do something. Please take responsibility. This life is creative evolution. It's the life, the mind drives the whole process. Why? Because this world is within your mind. That's why your mind can change it. Thank you for listening. So I hope that's interested you. I hope it wasn't boring and something you haven't heard before. Now there was one little question yesterday about the lion in India. And somebody has gone on Wikipedia and has got the Asian lion and actually there were lions in India and there still are. The Asiatic lion or Persian lion or the Indian lion is a subspecies of the lion which survives today. At the moment it's only in the Gir forest of Gujarat, India. However, there's only 359 Asiatic lions there now. But anyway, they were found in India a long time ago. The Asiatic lions once ranged from the Mediterranean to the northeastern parts of the Indian subcontinent. On excessive hunting, water pollution and decline in natural prey reduced their habitat. Historically, Asiatic lions were classified into three kinds, Bengal, Arabian and Persians. So there were lions in India in the time of the Buddha. Hence, the lions roar. So yeah, they were there. 
Okay, any questions, please put it in the box here. Any new questions, please put them up. But I'll start answering them while we get going. Dear Ajahn Brahmawangso, when it comes to the origin of this universe, I heard of two versions from the monks. The beginning and the end of this world is unknowable. There is no beginning and ending of this world. Which statement is the one said by the Buddha? I think both statements do not carry the same meaning. The beginning and ending of this world is unknowable. Actually, the beginning and ending of the whole series of universes, yeah, that's I think what we mean there. Because when there's many sequences of universe, the beginning of this universe we can know, maybe the beginning of the previous universe, but there's been so many universes. The beginning of the series of this universe is just too far back. Not even the Buddha can know that. Nor the end. But there was another uh, answer to that question which actually was told by the Buddha. And this is a great story because this concerns the first astronaut. Who was the first person in space? Does anyone know? Sorry? Yuri Gagarin. No, it was Rohitasa the monk. <laughs> the first, not cosmonaut, not astronaut, but the first monkonaut. <laughs> this is in the suttas, because a long, long time ago, there was a monk. And this monk learned how to levitate. Now, some monks can levitate. That's true. But this was a really great meditator. He would have gone in the Guinness Book of Records of, of levitators. And one day he thought, where is the end of this universe? I don't know about you, but I remember as a kid thinking, where does this universe end? Is there a little bit of a wall which says, you know, you can't go any further or a fence, then you get shot if you go through the fence, like they have over here in Malaysia? Or is there some sort of drop? Where does the universe end? And so this monk decided to find out. So he levitated off the planet and there was some credibility in this story because it said that he went so far he went to the spaces where suns and moons shine not. And actually for that time that showed they had some understanding about what a sun was. And the, you know, if you go far enough away the sun's light doesn't reach you. You go into the dark spaces between solar systems. And not unsurprisingly, not only did he not find an end, but he also died on the journey. And he got reborn as a deva, and he still hadn't got his question answered. So he went to you know, the head of the devas, where he was reborn, and said, I know, I died trying to find out the end of the universe. Where is the end of this universe? And this lower type of David said, well, I don't know. No, but there's another level of Davis just above us. The, the Davis of the four great kings, they will know. So he went up to the level of the four great kings and asked them and said, well, we don't know, but just above us is a Tusita realm, and the, sorry, the Tower Tingsa realm. And the head of the Tower Tingsa realm is Saka, he will know. So he went to see Saka, and Saka said, well, I don't know where the universe ends, but just above us is the Yama Devas. They will know. So he went to the Yama Devas, 
And he said, well, we don't know, but the other people, have you ever tried to get things done in the government civil service? And they would say, we don't know, but the next one won. <laughs> this is just the same thing. So he went up to Yama realm. They sent him up to the Tusita realm. The Tusita realm said, we don't know, but the Nimana Rata, the Nimana Rata, what? No. The Nimana Rata Wasawati day was might know. They didn't know, so the Paranimata day was they might know. They didn't know, but they said the Brahmakayaka devas, they might know. So they went to the highest of these heavens, and the Brahmakayaka devas said, Look, we don't know, but our chief, Mahabrahma, he will certainly know. But where is Mahabrahma? He said, Well, actually, we don't know where he is, but every now and again, there's this huge light, and he comes out of the light. You know what that light is called? Nimitta, just before jhana. Brahma sometimes lives in the first jhana, sometimes comes out again. So he comes out of the nimitta, goes back into the nimitta, into the jhana realm. And so he just only waited a little while, there's a beautiful nimitta light, and out came Brahma. And so this monk asked, Ah, Brahma, you're just the guy I was waiting to see. Where does this universe end? He actually said, Where do the four elements cease without remainder? where the universe then, for that's actually what he was looking for, the physical end of the universe. And Brahma said, I am God, the great God, the firstborn, the knower and master of all that was and ever is. And the monk said, yeah, I know, but where does the universe end? <laughs> and God said again, I am the great God, the firstborn, the creator. Yeah, but where does the universe? I am God, the great God. Yes, but that's not the question I was answering. And so God looks around, he takes him by the shoulder and leads him aside. He said, monk, the reason I said that is because I don't know. <laughs> and I didn't want these other ones, people, to realize that great God doesn't know everything. And that's in the, in the Digi Nikaya, this I'm saying almost verbatim. And he said, monk, you're a stupid monk. Why come and ask me? You should have asked the Buddha. He's the one who knows that question. So he went to go and see the Buddha. And he told the whole story. And he asked the Buddha, where does this universe begin and end? And that's where the Buddha gave this very well-known saying. He said, monk, the universe begins and ends in this fathom-long body with its mind. So he said, in here you find the beginning and the end of the universe. Because in here you find your mind. And when you know your mind, you know the beginning and end of the universe. So, the beginning and the end of this universe is unknowable. In one framework, yes, the physical end, beginning, it's just too far back. But the spiritual beginning and end of this universe, yes, you can know in deep meditation. And the, the real ending of this world especially is called Parinibbana, cessation. And that's found in here, not going out into the universe. So I hope that answers the question. It's a deep question, that's how the Buddha answered it. I'm going to turn this upside down, otherwise the ones asked yesterday would never get to be answered. Here we go. As a beginner in meditation, how should we do meditation? What's the difference between being in past and watching the in-breathing and out-breathing? Thank you. Between being in the present. Okay, I've given lots and lots of instructions in meditation. How you meditate is relaxing the mind. 
So when you're in the past, you're not relaxing anymore. Imagine you were on holiday, maybe say in some beautiful resort in Lankawi. There you are in Lankawi, and you take your mobile phone with you. And that really is dumb. So all the past keeps calling you up. You haven't done that project. You haven't given me the accounts. So if the past can call you up, that's not a holiday. And imagine going to Lankawi on resort and you take all the work which you have to do next week. That is double dumb. <laughs> you're taking your future with you. If you're on holiday, just enjoy the present moment. You work so hard for this. This is holiday. It's not the time when you think about what work has been done or what work is going to be done in the future. Otherwise, you'll never have any rest. So that's why you have to get into the present moment to get some rest. There is no peace in the past. You can never fix it up. There is no peace in the future. You can never make it so certain that you're going to be safe. The only place you can find any peace is right now. And number two, being in the present moment with the breathing, you can be with the breathing as long as it's the breathing which is happening now, not the next breath. What's going to happen next? Forget about that, just the breathing happening now. Then you're okay. So there's many more talks on meditation, but I talk all morning on meditation, so I better go on to this next one. Is it possible with meditation to go through phases of desertification inside as one loses interest in entertainment such as reading, fiction, the movies, having conversations, theatre and sometimes even music. It's not a negative or depressed phase but it feels bare and slightly odd. You just get some more simplification because all those things which you really found fascinating before you think, why did I waste all my time in this? Look for movies. You know what's going to happen. In a movie, boy meets girl Boy doesn't get girl. There's usually a lot of violence and they save the world in the, in, in the middle and then in the end they all live happily ever after. <laughs> I remember being on an aircraft and they were playing a movie. I never took the headphones but you couldn't miss seeing the picture on the big screen. And it was Armageddon. Now, I've never seen that movie but you don't need to see the movie. You know exactly what's going to happen. Of course they're going to save the world. Of course that comet is not going to hit. And of course, I mean, I think at one part, I was just laughing my head off because they had this uh, space shuttle. Apparently they had two space shuttles and they flew to this meteor because they had to explode it with an atomic bomb to split it in half so it wouldn't hit the Earth. And one of these space shuttles, they didn't land properly and they hit the rock and they hurtled backwards and forwards. It was like a car crash multiplied by a thousand. Sparks and flames were going everywhere. And you know, no human being could ever survive such a crash, except in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> and it was five minutes of special effects, flames and crashes and the thing going round and round and hitting and sparks, and then it finally came to a rest. And you see all the dust suddenly settle. And then you saw a hand come up and grab something. 
And then the hero, I forget what his name was, Brad Pitt or something, come up above. And not only was he not scratched, his hair was perfect. <laughs> it's absolutely crazy. So you know what's going on. So you don't need to actually to follow the movie. You know if it's a James Bond film, he's going to save the world. It always does. So he can come back and save it again next week. <laughs> so after a while, the only reason we do this is because we want to be distracted. But after a while, you realize you don't need to run away from the world in distractions. The world is beautiful as it is right now. And the best music is silence. The best movie is what's happening in this present moment. It's called life. So after a while, you just get fascinated with now. It's not as if you get dull. Just ordinary things in life which used to your ancestors used to enjoy before they had TV, before they had music, before they had internet. They could just enjoy simple things of life. And sometimes when we meditate, we go back to that beautiful, pure simplicity. We don't need artificial entertainment. And you know that one of those beautiful natural joys is just fellowship, being with one another, talking, spending time together. Not in front of a TV, but in front of each other. Talking, telling stories, talking about meditation or Dhamma or whatever. So after a while actually that's what happens to you. It's not a desertification. It's like a more richness of your life. Anyway, someone asked me to go to Chinese temple more often to pray for Deva protection. He knows that Devas are protecting me and requests me to pray there more often. Is it alright to do that? Nah, you don't need to do that too often. Because if those are the sorts of devas who always demand you go and pray often, they're not really good devas. They're selfish devas who've got big egos and they only help you if you keep praying to them and praying to them and praying to them. So you go to the higher level of devas and they really respect and protect you if you do things like keeping precepts, if you're compassionate. So don't go to the physical temple Go to the non-material temples of kindness and virtue and generosity and compassion. So pray at the donation box. <laughs> Worship at the old people's home. <laughs> Meditate by being kind to your grandmother. And that's more important than going to a temple and waving joysticks around. Because that's the real temple, the temple of life. We're actually practicing kindness, generosity and virtue. And then the devas who live in such temples will protect you much, much more. How can we be conscious of the present moment when we do not, when we do, not do meditation? I mean, how can it be helped in our daily lives? It means every now and again we have the opportunity come back into the present moment. You can't always be in the present moment. You know, I had to uh, plan for the aircraft, so I had to plan when I could come here. And if I was in the present moment, I would never get to the boarding gate in time. Boarding gate is closing, boarding gate is closing, present moment awareness, present moment awareness. So you keep it practical 
But when you can, when you want to rest, when you want to stop, stop in the present moment. A good example is you're on your way to work and you get stopped at the red traffic light. When your car stops, you stop too. Don't send your mind to the office. If you're coming home, don't send your mind ahead of the car, what I'm going to eat when I get back home. Stay there. You've got no place to go. You're at the red traffic light. Stop. Relax. And enjoy the moment. And there are many red traffic lights in life. You may be waiting for an appointment with the dentist or the doctor. Marvellous, you've got a chance to meditate, just be here, relax. Instead of filling your mind with distractions or wanting to be somewhere else. Other times you have to plan, you have to remember. There are many opportunities in life which we throw away. Opportunities to be present and to relax. Arjan, if a person who likes to torture animals such as ants by breaking the ant's legs just for fun and he or she lost his or her leg in her, her past life... Oh, hang on. If a person who likes to torture animals such as ants by breaking the ant's legs just for fun in his or her past life and she has lost his or her legs in his present life in an accident, is this because of their past life karma, just a part of the, part of the contract to be born as a human being? Or is it the karma of his or her carelessness? It can be. So when we have the past karma, it can be that you, know, you lose your legs because you harmed someone in a previous life. That certainly can be the case, but it's not always the case. But it certainly can be the case. So that's why you know, we want to increase our chances of a good life in the future by being kind to animals in this life. So don't go around torturing animals. And those of you, you know, who still like you know, to eat meat or fish or something, don't go to these, um, these restaurants with crabs and lobsters where you have to choose your crab or choose your lobster and have it killed in front of you. you know, please be kind. If you go to such a restaurant and say, I'll have that lobster and take it to the river and release it. How to teach teenagers Buddhism, where to start from, thank you. What are teenagers interested in? What are teenage girls interested in? Teenage boys. <laughs> what are teenage boys interested in? Teenage girls. So start from there. So when I was in Singapore a couple of years ago, and they're having a youth retreat, a teenage retreat, so they say, can you go and teach them some Buddhism? So I said, sure. And of course, I never prepare anything. So you know, the two groups were separated, as usually are in such camps. The boys are one side, the girls are the other side. Of the room, that is. And so I said, okay, I'm going to teach you some Buddhism. And I looked at the girls and said, what type of boy turns you on? What type of boy do you like? And it's a great conversation, because actually the boys were really interested in this. You know what it's like being a teenager? You want to find a nice girl. You want to do, how, how do you do this? What am I supposed to do? Now, how do you find yourself, make yourself attractive to a girl? So the girls started saying you know, that they actually wanted a boy they could trust. And I asked them, do they have to wear you know, expensive clothes? They said, no, 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 no. They don't need to wear expensive clothes. They need to be nice and good fun. And one thing is trustworthy. And if they kept sort of five precepts, is that good? Oh, yeah, that means I can trust them. 
Do they have to do stupid things like, you know, driving fast motorbikes? Oh, no, that's stupid. We don't like that at all. And the, the, the boys were actually getting some information that being good, keeping five precepts and not being stupid would actually increase their chances of finding a pretty girlfriend. And then I turned to the boys. You know, what type of girl do you like? Now, does she have to have expensive clothing? I said, no, not really. Does she have to look sexy? Well, that helps, but... <laughs> now, boys being boys. But what do you really like? And they said, also, someone who's kind. And actually, the girls were listening, too. And the girls were realizing all these things which we promote in Buddhism, like precepts and compassion and being trustworthy, actually made you more attractive. And so the boys and the girls, they were very thankful that now they could attract you know, a more pretty girl a better boyfriend. And also, I was thankful because now they understood the value of precepts and kindness. So it was a win-win for everybody. So I succeeded really well, not just in teaching Buddhism, but in saying why you should keep precepts. You know, why you should be kind. Because you get a better girlfriend. <laughs> you get a better boyfriend. So that's how I taught Buddhism to teenagers. Teach it at their level, what they're interested in. De Ajahn, are the three knowledges compulsory for attainment of Sotapanna? No, the three knowledges are knowledge of past lives, knowledge of the law of karma, and the Four Noble Truths. That's actually the stuff of full enlightenment. So the three knowledges, the Tewija, that means full enlightenment. Stream winning is just on the way. Dear Ajahn, what does effort mean in meditation? Great question. It's the effort to stop. It's the effort to restrain. It's the effort to renounce. The effort to be kind. The effort to be gentle. That takes effort. Because our natural way is always to do things, to complain, to be fault-finding, even to be selfish. And so we need effort to stop that, to restrain. Remember the great story of Angulimala? Charging after the Buddha, trying to kill him. But the Buddha had such psychic powers. You know, he was faster than, who is it, Asavapau? Who's the fastest man in the world now? Was that Asav, not Asavapau, it's somebody else, isn't it? Who won the 100 meters sprint. Anyway, whoever it is, the Buddha was much faster. And not even Angulimala could catch him. So what did he say? He said, stop, monk, stop. And the Buddha said, I've stopped. You stop. And Angulimala realized this was not just ordinary words. He got the deep meaning and he stopped. And that was his teaching from the Buddha. Stop. It wasn't just stop killing, stop breaking precepts. It was stop everything until his mind stopped. And that's where he got enlightened. The effort to stop, to cease, not to do anything, not to complain, 
And from stopping, you become still. And from stillness, you see things as they truly are. Nobody get enlightened. So it's the effort to stop, to restrain, to renounce, to say no. That's the effort. Thank you. Okay, fresh question, fresh answer. Dear Venerable, my friend's house seems to be haunted by spirits. Can sutras help solve this? Yeah, sometimes they can, but... Okay. Sometimes they can help solve the, the spirits, but the best thing to do is keep the spirits there. Because if you get the spirits on side, they can protect you from all sorts of bad things. They can protect you from burglars. So if you're kind to the spirits, the spirits will say, wow, this is such a good landlord I've got at this time. So, you know, share merits with them, be kind to them, and they will look after you. There's been many times that those spirits or ghosts in people's houses, sometimes that there's a fire, and they wake you up in time so that you could put out that fire. A burglar might be coming in the house, and they knock you on the head, and you can catch that burglar before they come in. So some of these ghosts can be very, very helpful. So if you get a friendly ghost, you don't need security alarm. <laughs> You've got ghosts there. And all you need to do is actually put a sign on the front door, this house is haunted. <laughs> no, no burglar will come in. They're very, very good. But if you want to get rid of them, yes, chanting some sutras, but chanting metta, giving lots and lots of metta, loving kindness, and also sharing merits. And if they don't go, at least they become your friend. De Ajahn, how do you console a friend whose mother is very sick and may be dying? If she is dying, you have to allow, uh, give your mother permission to die, and you let her go. To understand, according to Buddhism, the greatest act of love is to let someone go. To free them, they're old, they're sick, they're hurting, they're in pain. Just let them go to heaven. What are you keeping them here for? So one of the greatest uh, things of consoling is please understand your Dhamma, your Buddhism much better. And people who actually come to talks, they study, they do meditation, they're no longer afraid of death either their own or other people's. But sometimes they get into a state they don't really understand what Buddhism is, someone is dying and they just go crazy with grief. And they don't let the person go. We all have to die. You all have to let go of your loved ones sooner or later. That's one of the obvious truths of life. So prepare yourself now to let go of your loved ones. Enjoy them while they're here. Care for them. When it's a time to let them go, you're ready. Mum, Dad, we've had such a wonderful time together, I'll never forget you. Bye-bye. And that's with total love and total wisdom. You've given me so much, I will never forget you. You don't want me to cry. You want me to go on with my life and be happy. Because all parents want their children to be happy and free. So out of filial piety, I will not cry for you. Instead, I will make merit for you, remember you, and be an even better son or daughter 
out of love and respect for you. But crying doesn't help anybody. So they should have some good Dharma teachings and then you don't have that problem. What is dreaming? How does, how does dream form, does it relate to our mind? Our dreaming is just what the mind does when you're sleeping too much. Because <laughs> sometimes, you know, that most of those dreams happen in the early morning when the brain starts to turn on again. A lot of that dreaming is the brain wants to wake up but you still want to be in bed. So then the brain is doing some work but you're still asleep. But most of those dreams, they're just fantasies. It's just like some people when they're meditating, they have these random thoughts come up and the random thoughts lead to something or another. So they're really not important. They're like rubbish. They're like spam on your computer. So don't take them seriously. If I did not hear wrongly that you said one will become a human being and the next life depends on their strong desire to be one, I thought the Buddha also said it's very, very difficult to be born in the human realm. So if someone commits evil and strongly wants to be in the human realm when he dies, will he be able to be one then? Okay, wanting to be one is one of the important factors of being reborn as a human being. And having the karmic uh, resources to become a human being is also important. So if you really want to be a human being but you've got bad karmic resources, you just can't get into the human realm. But if you've been a reasonably good person, you know, a kind person, a generous person, a virtuous person, then you've got enough karmic resources, you've got the entry ticket. So if you've got a ticket to the concert and you want to go, then you'll go there. But if someone goes you a ticket and thinks, no, nah, I don't really fancy going, and of course you won't go. So you need the ticket and the desire to go there. So if you've got lots of good karma, you've got the ticket to, for a new human rebirth, but you have to want to go there as well. Because some of my disciples in Perth, I'm embarrassed to say, told me they would rather be reborn as a dog. They said this. said, next life I want to be reborn as a dog. And they're good people, they've been kind, they've been generous. They said, what do you want to be a dog for? And they said, because I don't like going to work on a Monday morning. <laughs> And dogs, they stay at home all day. And these dogs, they don't have to cook their food. You now you get them really nice dog food. And some people, they don't just give them dog food, they give them human food. Sometimes you give them chicken and steak. And these dogs, they have a wonderful life. They just play around all day. They sleep whenever they want. They don't have to go into the traffic. They don't have to do anything. All they have to do is to turn out to be stroked every now and again. That's their job. Gee, that's a nice job, isn't it? just be available to be stroked whenever. <laughs> but then I told my supporters, said, well actually in Australia, if you have a dog, it has to be taken to the vet first for the operation. And when I told them that, they said, okay, I don't want to be a dog. <laughs> they like their sex life. So anyway. But these days it's much easier to be born as a human being than in the time of the Buddha simply because there are more vacancies. <laughs> there's more human beings around and there's more women having babies. So there's more, like, more rooms at the hotel. So it's much easier to get in. Ajahn Bam, you spoke of the lights appearing in jhana and the same at death. So can we, can we attain jhana in death? What is the difference? Ah, that's a great question. If you can learn when you see that light at your death, 
know what to do with it, which is actually be absolutely still, not be excited, not do anything. Yes, you can. But if you can't do that now, some people see those lights that come up when they're meditating and they can't develop them into jhana because they mess around with them. If you can't do that now when you see the lights you know, in this meditation retreat, you won't be able to do it when you're dead. So actually, one way of describing this nimitta practice I'm teaching here is a rehearsal for your death. This is dying training. <laughs> and it is. Because you actually rehearse, you're going to see that beautiful light when you die. And you've seen it before when you're meditating, you've learned how to use it and what to do with it, what it is. And it means when you die, you'll be way ahead of everybody else. You've had experience. So yeah, good question, and you are actually doing something there. Next question. <laughs> I often practice Buddhism in boarding school. Because of that, my teachers and friends always say that I'm going to be a nun next time. What should I reply to them? Thanks. They say, well, if you think I'm going to become a nun later on, that nuns usually get psychic powers, and if you mistreat me, you better watch out once I become a nun. <laughs> and they'll be really kind to you, because who knows, you might become a nun. When you become a nun, you get all the psychic powers, and then you can take revenge on all the bad things they did. <laughs> no, just say, you don't know what happens. Just because you meditate a lot doesn't mean you can become a nun. So the future's uncertain. I don't know what I'm going to be. But just in case I do become a nun and develop psychic powers, please know I will remember everything you said and done to me. <laughs> Ajahn, can a monk radiate metta to the yogis and devotees and can they feel the energy? Do you believe in orbs? If yes, what are they? Number one, yes. Number two, no. Yes, a monk can radiate metta to the yogis and devotees and they can feel the energy. So hopefully you've been feeling some energy. And orbs... These are just diffraction patterns caused by dust in front of the digital cameras. They are not devas, they're not magical beings. And when you take these digital photographs, every now and again you see these like, circular smudges you know, on the pictures. And some people are so gullible, they think, ah, that was a deva. Even just... On the way up here, Singapore, the last time I went to Singapore, someone took a digital photo, and it's this beautiful light just right over my heart. They say, oh, Ajahn Brahm, you are a wonderful monk after all. I said, no, that's dust in your camera. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Experiments have been done. And look, if you want to prove this to yourself, get one of your maybe not-so-good friends to go to the nightclub or to the pub, or to the place where people gamble, or to the places where these prostitute girls take a photograph. You find those dust particles there as well. Because I remember seeing a photo in a pub in England. No davers hang out in pubs. <laughs> You'll never find a heavenly being in a nightclub, but you can find these orbs there. So it's just a natural phenomena. It is not something supernatural. Don't be gullible. 
Do you believe relics can grow? Yeah. Do you, have you ever been to a relic exhibition? Have you ever seen relics of the Buddha? Of course you have. Because the relics of the Buddha is the Dhamma, the teaching. Not these bits of bone or these little crystals or whatever else. That's not relics. The Buddha said in the Dhamma Dhyada Sutta, be heirs to my teachings, don't be heirs to my material things. So the relics, what was left by the Buddha for generations to come, are not bits of bone. It's these great teachings which make you peaceful, solve problems, make you sort of uh, kind and more virtuous, eventually make you enlightened. Those are the relics of the Buddha. And I've seen them grow. As the teachings grow and develop. So the real relics of the Buddha, yeah, they do grow. These other relics, ah, yeah, they're interesting, but look, they're no big thing. They don't help you get in line. They don't solve all the problems of your life. What really does solve the problems, though, are the real relics of the Buddha, which is the teachings. Ajahn, what are your views on Tibetan practices or initiations, empowerments, pujas, and others? Well, yeah, I've, I was never uh, a Tibetan practitioner, although when I was uh, young in England, the only monastery there was a Tibetan monastery, and I used to get up very early for my meditation, getting very quiet, and then some of these trainees would come in to do their hundred prostrations. I didn't mind it at first, but after a few minutes, <gasps> as they were prostrating all the time. And I thought, gee, it wouldn't it be better if you had like a prostration room and a meditation room because they're making such a noise. And that's the only thing I remember. And I thought, prostrations, they may be a good training, but surely this developing the mind in meditation was you no know, more important. And how many bows do you need to do? And initiations, I never really understood them, what they were really for, because when I read in the time of the Buddha, there was no such thing as initiations. No, he just gave you the five precepts and off you went. He taught you how to meditate and you did it. But one of the problems, though, with initiations, one of the things which makes me a bit um, concerned is it's like from teacher to student. And it actually gives the teacher a bit too much power. As if I'm the only one who can give an initiation. I'm the only one who can teach meditation. I'm the only one who can give you precepts. And really, that's not true. Each one of you, you don't need a monk to receive the precepts. All you need to do is, with sincerity, to say, I am going to keep the five precepts. It doesn't have to be a monk to teach meditation. Now, some of you are very good at meditation. You can share your knowledge with others. So sometimes that when it has to be a monk or a lama or a Rinpoche or something, or you know, an Ajahn to teach, sometimes I think that's too dangerous. So the teachings in Buddhism are free and open for anybody to learn and also to share. But really, I don't really know what I'm talking about because I haven't been in that tradition, so I might be wrong. But that's just my reflections. How about black magic? that very popular in Thailand. Is it true or superstitious? The only black magic I know are the chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> but no, some of it is true. 
but it's very rare. And if it is black magic, what it is is see, some person gets to in control of one of these lower beings. And eventually that lower being will get out of control and turn on its owner. Anyone who practices black magic always comes to a very bad and an awful end. So please don't get involved in it. However, if that person does black magic against you, the best way of protecting yourself, and it always works and it's so powerful, is to keep your precepts. If you have five precepts and you keep them, you become invulnerable to black magic. They just can't do anything to you. It's only if you're weak, in virtue, can black magic have any power over you. Virtuous people are protected. Give you a story about that, because people love these stories. There was one of my disciples in Perth. She was a Thai girl. And uh, she migrated, she married a Westerner and migrated to Perth. She's a really great supporter of our monastery. And after a while, no, she had her mother, her father had died, so she invited her mother to Perth, got like a, a visa for her mum, so she could look after her mother in the last years. Mother could speak no English at all, but you know, when I saw her, I could speak some Thai. But after a while, her mother, being elderly, got sick and went into hospital. And the daughter told me that even though she was a Buddhist, you know, she liked to you know, mess around in some other things as well. And she wanted to find out whether her mother would survive this illness or whether it's going to be a last illness. So she went to one of the famous mediums, a spirit doctor in Perth. And the spirit doctor asked what you want. He said, look, my mother's in hospital. Can you find out if she's going to survive or not? He said, I can do that, $20. So she paid her $20. And this medium went into a trance. Well, first of all, she had to know the hospital, the ward, and the room number because she was going to leave her body and actually see uh, the mother. So she left her body in a trance, left her body, went to the hospital, came back again. When she came out of trance, the first thing she did was give the $20 back. And now this woman, Ratana her name was, said, why? What are you doing this for? No, couldn't you find my mother? And the medium said, look, I found your mother. I went to the hospital. I found the ward. I found the room. I got to the door, but I couldn't get in. He said, your mother has got this force field around you, around her. I've never seen this before. It's impenetrable. Not even I can get through. Who the heck is your mum? And Ratna said, well, actually, she's a Buddhist nun. She's a mayor chi. She's been on eight precepts for the last 30 years. And the medium said, you stupid girl, give me the $20 back. Why didn't you tell me that beforehand? People like me can't get close to people like that. You know, it's worth the $20 for the story. Because, you know, in that level, the level where black magic works, if they see you've got five precepts, you've got this force field around you and they just can't get in. And it's a power of virtue on the spiritual level. You may not be able to see it, but those people who mess around in those areas, you've got this incredible power field around you and they just can't get in. So that's the best protection. Ajahn, why are arahats who are free from all mental suffering commit suicide due to physical sufferings? 
Again, that's another good question. There's one or two cases where that seemed that might happen. But basically, did the Buddha commit suicide? He knew that was tainted meat and he ate it. Three months before the Charpala shrine, he gave up the will to live. He said, well, I could live to the end of the year, but I decide not to. Is that committing suicide? Did the Buddha commit suicide? <laughs> he knew it was poisoned meal and he ate it. What do you reckon? <laughs> it doesn't matter anyway. But what it does matter is that sometimes um, uh, Arahat committing suicide is just basically letting go. Feeling, look, there's not much point in me carrying on. I've done all the teaching, so bye-bye world. Welcome Parinibbana. Even Ananda committed suicide. In one way of looking at it, because his story, he was 120 years of age. He was the most famous monk at the time. The Buddha had died, Sariputra, Moggallana had gone, Kasapa had disappeared. So all these monks at the time of the Buddha, he was the last one left. And of course he was so famous. And these two kingdoms, they were following him. You know why? Trying to get his relics. Because relics were big business. Just like now, if you've got lots of relics in your temple, lots of people come and give donations. Not only that, but in ancient India, if you had big relics, you had the stupa of Ananda there, many people would come on pilgrimage. And when they came on pilgrimage, they would need a place to stay, food to eat. So it you know, was good for the economy. I don't know how famous I am, but if I, if I died in Mahindarama Temple, Penang, maybe Venerable Indaradna would be very happy because many more people would be able to come here. <laughs> but maybe people in Perth say, no, 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 please die in Perth. So we get many pilgrims over there. I don't know. You know it's stupid, this relic business. But anyhow, they both wanted these relics. And these two countries were really getting so aggressive, they were about to fight over Ananda's relics. So he walked to the boundary between the two kingdoms, the Rohini River. And the, this, the river separated the two kingdoms. And he rose up into the air, levitated in the middle of the river, midway in the river, high up. And then he entered the fire element and immolated himself. And two piles of relics of equal size fell on either side of the river so the countries would not go to war. Now that's the story of Ananda's Parinibbana. So he willed himself to enter the fire element and die. Is that suicide? Or is that a very cool way of dying? <laughs> I have accumulated a lot of anger from my mother, my school, career and marriage. I have tried meta meditation and forgiveness. There's still much anger left. Whoever wrote that, if you really, really, really want to overcome the anger, then renounce and become a monk. Look, that anger is eating you up. It doesn't matter what your mother did, what your school did, what anyone did. Getting angry does not change the past. It just ruins your present 
and cripples your future. Anger doesn't remedy the past. It just uh, destroys your present and cripples your future. So it doesn't make any sense. A wise, intelligent person would realize that why am I allowing those people to stop me being happy and successful? Let it go. If you really want to let it go, please learn some meditation quickly. And that way you can let go of the past, free yourself of anger and have a beautiful life. Dear Ajahn, could Ajahn please explain the monk with perpetual diplomatic entry into the US has this practice of carrying loads of amulets and other items that devotees ask him to carry for blessings. This forest Ajahn, he is encouraging the use of amulets. Happiest is the man with the least possessions. Yet this good Ajahn is carrying such heavy loads is said to be at least 30 kilograms from his devotees. Yeah, sometimes he's a very good monk, he's got great powers, but sometimes the monks are too kind. And sometimes they do these things, oh, it makes the people happy, it's not really any... They know these things haven't got much power, but he does them anyway. So he's a monk with great kindness, but maybe it would be better to be a bit more strict, like an Ajahn Chah, and not have anything to do with his amulet business. It's much better, yeah, being able to fix the mainframe computer at NASA, you know, is a pretty amazing. But you know what the Buddha said, of all psychic powers, all such psychic powers, they all suck, except one. He says, there's only one psychic power which I praise, and that's the power to teach the Dhamma. And he called that a psychic power. To teach in part the Dhamma, he says, is the only psychic power which is worth anything. Because that really stops people suffering. So that's the psychic power which you should really praise. Other stuff, it's just really a waste of time. I was pregnant for a month a few years ago, but I had to abort it. I have been feeling guilty ever since as I've been broken the first precept. How can I bring my problem to a closure? Okay, that first question first. Many girls, I'm sure even many girls here, have had an abortion. And it's one of the toughest decisions a girl will ever make. And I, as a man, will never be able to understand it. So don't ask me, is it good or bad? I have no experience. I have never been pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, I know my Buddhism... And I know forgiveness and understanding. You're making a very tough decision. And I really don't think that any woman would make that decision selfishly. That's a tough decision and you really think and contemplate and do your very, very best to try and make the best of a very difficult situation. So most of the time your intention is very good. So even when you do abort, it's what we call in Buddhism black and white karma. It's not just black karma, it's not white karma, it's a combination of some good, some bad karma. But it's totally different than if you go and murder your husband because he's been unfaithful to you. It's very different than if you're a burglar and you go and kill someone because you snatch their handbag and they hit their head. 
that first precept, killing, has many different grades to it. And a person, a woman who commits an abortion, that's one of the softest of grades. Because you don't do this with malice, usually. You do this, what you think is out of compassion, trying to keep everybody happy. So, remember, it may be breaking the first precept, but it's not bad breaking the first precept. It's on the lightest end of the scale. So, please give yourself forgiveness. Maybe make a donation to, say, an orphanage so that children who haven't got parents you know, can have a better chance in life. Because the Buddhas did say, if you do make some bad karma, it can be diluted by making lots and lots of good karma. Just like a spoonful of salt in my cup will mean the water can't be drunk, it's far too salty. The same amount of salt in a swimming pool, you won't be able to taste it. So the salt, the spoon of salt uh, is the bad karma and the small amount of water in a cup or the huge amount of water in a swimming pool is your good karma. So by making lots of good karma, you'll be able to dilute the bad karma of the abortion. So make it appropriate by giving some donation, help out, serve, say, in an orphanage or in a hospital somewhere. So please don't make too much of a big thing of it. Is it practical to bring a child into this world even if we are not ready emotionally and financially? What is Ajahn's opinion on this? Thank you. Boys and girls, if you have sex, you know, even if it's protected sex, sometimes the condom splits or sometimes the, um, the, the birth control pill doesn't work, maybe it's because you're sick and you vomited up or whatever. So remember, you know, if you have sex, it's likely to have a baby sometimes. So be prepared. Are you really ready to have a child? So be careful with your sexual life. And it, you know, it needs both of you. So not just the women's responsibility, the guys as well, to make sure it's protected. And so, you know, that you only have unprotected sex in the sense that you, know, you are planning to have a child. Because otherwise you do get yourselves in these really, really difficult situations. This is especially so for the teenage girls. Because sometimes you, know, you like the boy too much, you give in too much. Stand your ground and say no. Or at the very least, protected so that you're not going to get pregnant because you're the one who makes the decision in the end about the abortion. Not the boy, he's off in KL or Singapore somewhere. So you are the one who's going to take that responsibility. So please, you know, you demand sort of you know, a proper way of you know, your sexuality. Otherwise you get into trouble. So if you're not ready emotionally and financially, that's why we've got uh, birth protection for. So we don't need to bring a child into this world until we truly are ready. If a woman is a victim of rape, is it practical to have an abortion? Uh, five months pregnancy, for example, if she's emotionally and financially unstable. Thank you. Yeah, if you've been raped, and then it's, it's one of those situations, if you go through with that pregnancy and you have a child of this terrible person who raped you, that really is psychologically so scarring. 
So that's another case, you know, black and white karma, uh, but it's mostly white karma and a tiny bit of black if it's an abortion because you've been raped. But again, try not to put yourself in those situations where you're liable to be raped. You know, just check out those boys. Don't go walking down lonely streets at the wrong time of night. Because a lot of times, it's not always, sometimes, you know, it's just no, not the girl's fault at all. But, you know, you can do a lot to avoid that situation. And it's one of the worst things which can happen to a girl. It's a terrible trauma. So try and avoid it by being careful. Sometimes you know the dangerous places in this world. Avoid them. Increase your chances of not having to go through that. Dear Ajahn, if the beta, oh, Buddha ghosts can't hurt us, why some of them haunted by ghosts? You're haunted by ghosts because you don't understand those ghosts and you allow them to sort of play around and mess around with you. So again, if there is a ghost, be firm with them. No, ghosts are lower beings. You're a much higher being. It's like, you know, you're the boss at work and sometimes some bosses are so weak they give in to their, you know, juniors and the juniors, you know, uh, tell them what to do. So you be firm with that ghost. And you can say, listen ghost, if you don't behave, I'm going to call Ajahn Brahma out. <gasps> don't call Ajahn Brahma, please, I'll behave. <laughs> I'll call the monks and you'll be in big trouble. Oh, okay. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, does belief in Buddhist relics constitute superstition? What is the basis for people to say that the bone relics from cremations of a holy person looks Jew-like? I was taken to visit Ajahn Man's relics, which looked like this, and yet the relics of the historical Gautama Buddha exhibited in the Calcutta Museum looked like ordinary bones. And that was a Samasambuddha, very good. The reason why some of those relics look crystal is because of the wishes of the lay supporters. You know the famous, this has to be the last story. Tomorrow, no questions, because I've got, I'm getting more questions than I can answer every day. But this is a story from Tibetan Buddhism, and it's apparently a real story. And it's a great story about relics. Because there was this very devout Buddhist who used to live in Lhasa. And her son was a businessman. He would buy things in Tibet and take them on uh, donkey, uh, donkey carts or on the back of donkeys over the Himalayas, sell them in India. And then with the money, he'd buy things in India, take them back over the passes into Tibet and sell them in Tibet. You know, import, export. You know, but in the time when it all had to be done by donkeys. So he was about to set off with some goods to sell in India. And his mother said, look son, you're going to the holy land where the Buddha lived. And you're doing well in your business. Can you please get me some Buddha relics while you're in India? You know, for your dear old mum. And of course when your mum says, he said, sure mum, I'll get you some relics. And so off he went. And you know what it's like, those of you, you men who do business in Singapore or in India or whatever, or in China, sometimes it's so difficult doing business and you're so caught up with business, he forgot. So he was coming over the pass 
you know, with all the goods from India. And he saw his hometown of Lhasa and he thought, oh my goodness, I forgot my mum's relics. Stupid. So when he went home, he apologized to his mother. Look, I'm sorry, mum. You know, I was really busy this time in India, buying and selling. But look, I'm going in a couple of weeks again. Next time I'll get you some relics. You know, mother say, okay, son, don't worry about it. Next time is fine. So he went the second time, and again he forgot. And again he had to apologize to his mother. And this mother, time his mother scolding a bit, son, twice is okay, not three times, okay? You get me those relics. So he said, I promise you, mum, next time I go over there, I'll get you some Buddha relics. So he went back to India for the third time, and he was buying and selling, selling and buying, and he forgot a third time. And he was coming over the mountains, and he saw Lhasa, his hometown, in the distance. He thought, oh my goodness, I've forgotten again. I can't apologize a third time. What, what can I do? And as he was thinking how he could get out of this problem, he looked down, and just over the path, down the cliff, he saw the dead carcass of a dog. And he thought, now my mum, she's old. Now she's a bit stupid. She won't know the difference between a dog bone and a Buddha bone. So he scrambled down and broke off a little bit of bone from the carcass of the dog. He said, well look, it's all about in business, it's all about marketing and packaging. Packaging, that's the thing. So he got some very fine cloth he brought in India. He was going to sell this really fine cloth and he wrapped up the dog bone in this beautiful cloth. And she, he said, think, packaging. She'll think that anything in such an expensive cloth must be a Buddha relic, not a dog bone. So he was very pleased with himself. And when he went into the house, his mother said, you haven't forgotten again, have you? And he smiled and said, no mother, here. And he presented this beautiful cloth. And his mother was so excited. A Buddha relic. And she opened it. Oh, a Buddha relic. She bowed to the floor in front of it. She put it on her shrine. Thank you, son. Thank you, son. He made her happy. Silly old woman. <laughs> And off he went selling his stuff. And it took a week or two selling his goods. And when he came back home, there was this crowd of people outside his house. What's gone on? Has someone died? What's happened? And he pushed his way through and he said, look, I live here. When he got into the house, it was full of monks, full of lamas. What are you doing? They're all praying and chanting. What's happened? Has my mum died? No, it's been a miracle. What do you mean? And he pushed his way through the monks and there on the shrine, all his head monks were chanting and bowing, and his mother was there. Because out of this relic, there was these rays of beautiful light coming out. Real light emanating from this, from this what? Was it a dog bone? Or was it a Buddha relic? What do you think? That was a true story. As for me, when they asked me, the mother's faith and purity made it a Buddha relic. Remember earlier I said, 
Mind is the creator of all things. Her beautiful mind turned a dog bone into a Buddha relic. In the same way, faithful devotees can turn pieces of bone into beautiful crystals. That's how it works. Okay? Very good, so thank you for listening. I'm sorry that there's still more questions to answer, but I'll try again tomorrow, see what happens. Thank you for listening. We do the sharing of merits now. Sukita hon to yata yo, Sukita hon to yata yo, Sadu, Sadu, Sadu. Very good. Any announcements, Chapa? Okay, so same time, same place, tomorrow night, and the talk is the way to heaven, is it tomorrow? So if you want to go to heaven, you have to come up all these stairs up to this level, and I'll show you tomorrow night how to go the rest of the way. <laughs> way to heaven tomorrow night.